you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Mrs. Edna Gaylord was sitting in her home in Portland, Oregon, which she ran as a boarding house. In early December 1926, when she read an account of the murder of 48-year-old Blanche Myers elsewhere in that city. She was shocked by the description of the suspect in Myers' killing, who police were sure was the so-called Dark Strangler who had murdered several women in the San Francisco Bay Area and in the Pacific Northwest. She was shocked because the description of the suspect described to a T a man who had stayed at her house for a few days. He gave his name as Adrian Harris, Accompanied by a boarder named Sophie Yates, she went to the police to report that Adrian Harris had left her boarding house on November 29th, just before the murder of Blanche Myers, saying he was going to Vancouver, Washington, on the other side of the Columbia River. Before he left, however, he had given both of them some jewelry that he had. The police took the jewels, and it was discovered, after checking, that they had belonged to Florence Monks, another widow murdered by the Dark Strangler several days before. Now police had a name for the suspect, and Mrs. Gaylord was left with the unsettling realization that she had been living under the same roof as a serial killer who had murdered a dozen women by that point. This story was discussed at the end of the last episode. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 74, the second part of the story of Earl Leonard Nelson. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. First things first, you may want to go back and listen to the first part of this story if you haven't already, as this part will pick up right where we left off. But to summarize, beginning in February of 1926, a so-called Dark Strangler roamed up and down the West Coast. His M.O. was to approach landladies who ran boarding houses, or sometimes women with houses up for sale, and, under the pretense of viewing the property, attack and strangle the women sometimes manually, but often, particularly later, with the aid of a garrote of some type. The killer was also a serial rapist, or so the newspapers often report in a somewhat sanitized account. It was, of course, left out that most, if not all, of the women had been raped post-mortem and that the Dark Strangler was a necrophiliac. As we left off, 48-year-old Blanche Myers had just been murdered in Portland, Oregon, on November 29, 1926. 
Her body was discovered by police called by her 19-year-old son, Lawrence. Her body was found shoved under a bed, and the police recovered several clear fingerprints from the bed's metal frame. Fingerprints which were later found to match ones retrieved from Florence Monks's purse. Within a few days, the two women discussed in the introduction had entered the picture. Soon after the revelation of a name for the strangler given by these two, another man who had encountered the suspect was discovered. He was a Portland grocer named Russell Gordon, who said that the man named Adrian Harris came into his store fairly often, and that he always seemed a soft-spoken sort of man. The Seattle Daily Times, referring to the descriptions given by Edna Gaylord, Sophie Yates, Russell Gordon, and Mrs. H.C. Murray, who, you might recall from Part 1, was unsuccessfully attacked by the Strangler, said, When not in the midst of his heinous crimes, the Dark Strangler has an engaging personality, quiet habits, and pleasing manners. It was quickly realized that he was a Jekyll and Hyde type character, by far the most common personality type associated with serial killers. He wasn't necessarily a raving lunatic, but had two facets to his personality, the soft-spoken, ostensibly church-going man, and the cold-calculating killer. Seattle detective Charles Tennant said of him, The murderer isn't a maniac in the sense that he is mentally deranged, but there must be a screw loose somewhere. Ever since the murder of Clara Newman back in February, landladies all over the West Coast were living under a state of hypervigilance for any man they perceived to be, quote, strange. This only underlines the seeming normalcy of the killer most of the time, since he was able to charm these women, for lack of a better word, even despite their vigilance. This hypervigilance led to many arrests, some founded, but many without basis. Some of these have been described in the first part. On December 6, acting on a tip provided by a Eugene, Oregon landlady, a drifter by the name of Morris Yaffe was arrested after the landlady said that she had suspicions that he might be the so-called Adrian Harris. The suspect was viewed by some of those most familiar with Harris, however, and when they said that this wasn't the right man, Yaffe was released after having been in custody less than 12 hours. And on December 8th, in Seattle, a man named James Ford came to the police. A farm worker originally from Nebraska, he freely confessed to the murder of Florence Monks. But questioning revealed that Ford was not familiar with any of the details of the case, and it soon became apparent that he was just one of those cranks that come out of the woodwork during a high-profile murder investigation to give false confessions, something I'll never understand. The man known as Adrian Harris, however, had departed the West Coast. He would next arrive over a thousand miles away in Council Bluffs, Iowa. John E. Burrard, an employee of the, of the Burlington Railroad, lived at 351 Willow Avenue, on the outskirts of the city, with his wife Almira, originally from Hennessy, Oklahoma, and their 16-year-old daughter, Corrine. Another daughter, Evelyn, was 19 years old and didn't live in the house. John's railroad job didn't pay exceptionally well, so the Burrards rented out two rooms in, on their property. One was lived in by a co-worker of John's named Robert Moore, and the other was vacant. Robert Moore said he left for work about 3.30 on the afternoon of December 23rd. As he walked past the parlor, he said Mrs. Burrard was seated in the room conversing with an unfamiliar-looking man she introduced as Mr. Williams. He said he thought nothing much of it 
as Mrs. Burrard was an active member of the Methodist Church, and he assumed this Mr. Williams was some other church employee. About a half hour later, around four o'clock, Corrine returned home from work and couldn't find her mother. Her father returned home about an hour later, and the two searched the house top to bottom. Sometime shortly before six o'clock, John was searching the basement when he discovered his wife's body shoved behind the furnace. Signs of a struggle were to be seen, with blood on the floor and walls, and Almira had been badly beaten. A shirt ripped off a clothesline in the cellar was wound tightly around her neck. More searching revealed that Almira's pocketbook had been taken. Similarly to Detective Tackenberry in Portland, County Attorney Frank Northrup was quick to declare the death a suicide. Almira had been in St. Bernard's Mental Hospital for a nervous breakdown, during which she several times threatened suicide. An account of the crime in Nebraska's Lincoln Journal Star says that the coroner, Henry Cutler, had received an anonymous telephone call alerting him to a suicide at the Burrard home, but that he quickly realized it was a murder when he arrived there. Assuming this event even took place, and wasn't simply an invention, was this phone call from Earl Leonard Nelson himself, or from Northrop? In this case, though, unlike those of Beata Withers or Mabel Fluke, the actual police disagreed with Northrop's assessment from the start. It was clearly a murder, they said, and nearly from the start, it was considered the handiwork of a strangler who had been a scourge on the West Coast a few weeks before. It does seem that though we typically tend to look back and say police and law enforcement didn't really understand serial killers, and in many senses they didn't, often attributing seemingly random crimes and offenses to a killer, there seems to have at least been some understanding of M.O. linking crimes. In these strangling cases, the link seems to have been made more often than not. And when I did the earlier series looking into the Midwest axe murders leading up to Villisca, authorities also linked those crimes more often than not. John Burrard said of his wife's murder that she was a frail woman, so pretty and not tall. She had been extremely nervous for a long time and was in very poor health. It is plain to me that her attacker intended to commit a criminal assault and, failing in his effort, killed her for fear that she would report the attack to me. V.L. Trainer and A.A. Johnson, the doctors who did the autopsy, said that there was no evidence of sexual assault, possibly supporting Mr. Berard's assertions. It was still thought that her time in St. Bernard's was significant, however, but only in the possibility that her killer was some escaped lunatic or ex-patient there who had perhaps become obsessed with her during her time there. The hunt for the shadowy Mr. Williams soon petered out. Police were contacted by another Council Bluffs woman, a Mrs. O.H. Brown, living at 232 10th Avenue, who said that she had her home posted for sale. Probably about 3 o'clock, a half hour before Robert Moore saw Mr. Williams in the parlor, she said that a similarly described man, also giving his name as Mr. Williams, appeared at her home. He said he was working for the Northwestern Railroad, and wanted to move from Omaha to Council Bluffs. He frightened me. He ignored my reluctance to having him in the house. He looked in all the closets. I finally ushered him out, and after telling him to see my husband about the house, he inquired considerably into the time he would be home. I made two trips to the basement with him, and when he wanted to go down there again, I let him go alone. At the same time, 
Chief James Carter of the Fire Department said he received almost a half dozen complaints from various city women, including a Mrs. J.B. Waters, saying that someone claiming to be a furnace inspector had been making the rounds. Cotter said he had no idea about it. He certainly had no inspector scheduled. In all cases, the women either denied this man entrance or did not accompany him to the furnace. Not only had it been only two days until Christmas when Almira Berard was murdered, but also only five days before her birthday. Only four days after the murder of Almira Berard, on December 27th, 28-year-old Raymond Pace returned to his home at 3920 Hammond Place in Kansas City, Missouri. Their home was sublet, and a Mr. and Mrs. Ray Gorell, as well as Mr. Gorell's mother, lived in the house. Anyway, when he returned home, Ray Pace found his six-year-old son Victor incapacitated due to Potts disease, or what was called tubercular spine in those days, shouting that his mother had fallen down the stairs. Searching the house, he eventually found the body of, 23, of his 23-year-old wife, Bonnie, lying in an upstairs room, beaten badly, scratched, and strangled. Upon this discovery, he ran from the house yelling for the neighbors. Neighbors called the police in the hospital. Ray Fain at once police arrived. He later revived and stated that he believed the murder was committed by someone who robbed him. From the outset, it was obvious that the murder was being pinned on Ray, particularly once it was discovered that no money was, in fact, missing. Neighbors reported to police that he and Bonnie had been previously separated, only recently reconciling their relationship. Ray, meanwhile, denied this and said he had been merely away for work up in Iowa. The papers also made quite a thing of Ray's having a metal plate in his head in wildly variable moods, thanks to an injury he suffered when young. The implication, of course, was that Bonnie had been having an affair while her husband was away, possibly with Robert McKinley, a brother of their boarder Mrs. Gorell, and that Ray had then murdered his wife in a fit of jealousy. Ray insisted that though he and his wife had quarreled about money troubles as well as some of her past relationships and flirtations with men, he denied that he had ever been angry enough to hit her, let alone kill her. A neighbor named C.C. Buck said that he had seen a Ford pull up in front of the Pace home around 10 o'clock on the morning of the 27th, an instance which interested police, as the autopsy revealed that Bonnie's death had likely taken place shortly after that time. Buck said that a stocky younger man got out of the car, knocked on the door, spoke with Bonnie for a few moments, and was led inside. Buck couldn't give much in the way of description of this man, however. Eventually, Ray was cleared, and the murder of Bonnie Pace went cold. The very next day, a French native named Marius Harpin, a veteran of World War I, returned home to 2330 Mercier Street, not far from the Kansas state line, at approximately 6 o'clock. Several full milk bottles sat on the porch, and Marius wondered to himself why his wife Germania, ironic that a World War I veteran should marry a woman named for his enemy in that war, hadn't picked up the milk yet. He made his way inside and found both Germania and their eight-month-old son dead. Both had been manually strangled, as had Bonnie Pace. Upon investigation, police found that another Frenchman, a friend of Harpin's named J.F. Grofils, had been by the house about 12 o'clock and received no answer at the door. He said that the milk bottles were sitting on the porch then. 
Germania had expressed a belief, based on what I'm not sure, that someone was going to break into the house and steal Robert. So strong was her conviction that she got her husband to show her how to use his revolver. Neither of the Harpins smoked, but a cigarette butt was found in the bathroom. It was thought this may have been from the killer, as Edna Gaylord and Sophie Yates said that the man that they called Adrian Harris was quite a heavy smoker. Aside from a phone call received by police from someone confessing to the murders and threatening suicide, a call which may well have been just a crank anyway, no further evidence was retrieved in the case, and the murder of the Harpins, like all those before, went cold. The police of Kansas City and Council Bluffs now joined those of Seattle, Portland, and the Bay Area in the hunt for the shadowy figure now known as Adrian Harris. But he was not to resurface for several months, and when he did, it was another thousand miles away in Philadelphia. On April 27, 1927, Mary McConnell, 53, was cleaning on the second floor of her home at 1942 South 60th Street in southwest Philadelphia when a knock came at the door. Thinking it was a potential home buyer, she opened the door and met a man who neighbor Anna Kirkline said was stocky, 35 to 40, and looked as if he might be Greek or Italian. William McConnell, her husband, was away on business in the Wilkes-Barre area. Around 3.30 p.m., John and Alice Donovan, Mary's daughter and her husband, came by the house and found Mary's body upstairs under a bed, which was disturbed as if it had been pulled out from the wall and then pushed back after the body was deposited there. The Donovans found that a rag had been knotted around her neck so tightly that a pair of scissors was necessary to cut it off, and another was stuffed into her mouth. Some of her jewelry was missing, but Lieutenant William Belshaw said that he believed that robbery was only a minor motive, as quite a bit of jewelry and money was left in the house. Police notified pawn shops in the area as to the description of the jewelry taken. The next day, this paid off when they were notified by the owner of a pawn shop on South Street that someone had attempted to pawn one of McConnell's rings, but the attempt at seller was long gone by the time the police arrived. Like so many others before, the case went cold, with Lieutenant Belshaw saying the investigation had been hampered by the bodies being removed from the premises before the police investigation was complete. Police were quick to draw parallels with an earlier attack on a prospective home seller. Mrs. Richard Harvey was at her home on 2262 North Van Pelt Street in the central part of the city on April 19th, her four children at school. The 45-year-old woman answered the door to find a man standing on her doorstep. I didn't like his looks from the start. He was a foreigner by appearance, and he had a nasty, oily smile. He must have weighed 200 pounds, and he was bald, and his clothes were greasy and stained. He pointed at her for sale sign, which has been hanging there a long time, and said he might buy the house if it suited him. I didn't like the idea of him coming in when I was alone, but we have been trying to sell the house, and I didn't want to turn down a sale. He annoyed me a great deal when he put his hat on his head as soon as he stepped inside. Once he was inside, he began to interrogate Mrs. Harvey about all manner of personal things, where her husband worked, and about her children. He was uncomfortably close to her the entire time. I was becoming angry at the questions he was asking, and I guess he saw how I felt. 
He took another look at the front room and was apparently about to leave when, without warning, he grabbed me in his arms. I tried to struggle with him, but he clapped his hand over my mouth and whispered vile language in my ear. I resisted and broke away from him, screaming as I did so, and he turned and dashed out the front door. I ran to the window, shouting to neighbors and people on the street, but he was too quick to be caught. Nobody seemed to know which way he went. Mrs. Harvey said her attacker was about 5'7", about 40, and bald. However, others pointed out that the attacker of Mrs. Harvey might not have been the same man after all, since she mentioned he had a mustache, and besides, there didn't seem to have been any actual attempt to strangle her. On April 28th, the day after Mrs. McConnell was killed, Mrs. John Foy of 5531 Locust Street, a policeman's wife, was in her backyard hanging laundry when she saw a dark-skinned, stocky man knocking at the house next door, which belonged to a Sophie Freeman, and was posted for sale. He received no answer, and then, as Mrs. Foy told it, After knocking for a few minutes, the man looked over at me and asked if there was anyone in this house. I told him the house was vacant. He then asked me if my house was the same as the other, and when I told him it was, he asked me if he could come over and look at it. I told him he couldn't, and then he made a lunge at me. I began to scream and ran into my home, slamming the door. My husband, who was upstairs, got his police revolver and searched for the man, but he had disappeared. That evening, as well, a 15-year-old girl named Verna Alice Greenlee was walking her dog near the railroad tracks at 22nd Street and Sedgley Avenue when a man appeared and punched her several times, kicking the barking dog a few times. He then dragged her off toward a property belonging to the Pennsylvania Railroad. The dog continued to bark, and this noise, as well as Verna's screams, caused the attacker to punch her once more and then run off. Attracted by the commotion, a passing motorist picked the girl up and took her to the hospital. The man was at first assumed to be the strangler of McConnell, but though he resembled him for the most part, Verna was quite adamant about the fact that her attacker wore glasses. The attack on Greenlee, however, was only a few blocks north of Mrs. Richard Harvey's house. From this point, though he didn't know it, and in fact no one else did either, Earl Leonard Nelson's days as a free man were winding down to a close. But that didn't mean a few more women wouldn't fall thanks to him first. It was nearly a month until he again resurfaced, this time in Buffalo, New York, and he lived with this victim for a few days, biding his time. Jenny Randolph lived at 175 Plymouth Avenue in Buffalo. She was a 53-year-old widow, and a few years before, her only son Orville had died following a failed appendectomy. She threw herself into church work, helping distribute baby clothes to poor mothers, and at the same time, working as a waitress. Living with her brother Henry, she also operated a boarding house. At the time of her death, she had three boarders, those being a cook named Michael Malloy, a carpenter named James Bottinger, and a night watchman named Fred Merritt, who had lived there for years and who Jenny Randolph considered almost a foster son. There are currently two empty units in the house. On May 27th, a man named Charles Harrison came to the house and was described by Henry Gillett as stocky, dark-skinned, with slicked-back black hair and in his early 30s. Harrison, or Nelson, seemed to be reluctant to take one of the rooms, however, saying that they were too expensive. Finally, though, 
he viewed both rooms and took one on the second floor. This reluctance, in my mind, was likely due to wanting to avoid other boarders who could probably defend his chosen victim. He proved quite knowledgeable about religious matters, and the church-going Mrs. Randolph could, also, could often be found in the living room of the Plymouth Avenue house, discussing religion with the so-called Mr. Harrison. On the evening of May 29th, Mrs. Randolph went to church, and when she returned, Harrison and Henry Gillett were engaged in conversation. She joined the conversation, and at about 10 o'clock, Henry went to bed. He said that he briefly awoke at midnight, and could hear his sister and Harrison still talking. He went back to sleep, then came downstairs at about 3 a.m., and laid down on the sofa. Fred Merritt returned from work at about 7.30 on the morning of the 30th, and not finding Mrs. Randolph making breakfast as was her habit, he went out to a store and bought himself some breakfast. When he returned, he still couldn't find her and woke her brother. The two made their way into the kitchen and found bloodstains on the floor. They soon realized that this was a trail leading up the stairs and to Harrison's room. Breaking down the locked door, they saw feet protruding from underneath the bed. The two men pushed the bed away, revealing the badly beaten body of Jenny Randolph. She had been bludgeoned and a kitchen towel tied around her neck. Harrison was gone. Police were soon contacted by a man named Wilkinson who ran a pawn shop in town. He said that a man answering the description of Charles Harrison had come into his shop and pawned a bag of clothes. I'm not sure if the clothes were from another crime scene or if things had been taken from the Randolph crime scene and weren't immediately noticed by Gillett and Merritt. Aside from a sighting of a man thought to be Harrison, boarding an, at an eastbound train at the Pew on the outskirts of Buffalo and jumping off at Wenda a few miles away, Charles Harrison was in the wind and reappeared two days later, 220 miles to the west. Around 7 p.m. on Sunday, June 5th, police were by the owner of an apartment building at 640 West Philadelphia Avenue in central Detroit, Leonard Sink. He had been trying to reach some of the tenants at the house, 53-year-old Fannie Mae and 29-year-old Marina Torthy, for several days without success. Police went over to the house and gained entry to the apartment with a key given to them by Mr. Sink. In the apartment, they discovered May lying face down in the bathroom, strangled with an electric cord, and the body of Marina Torthy lying in an adjacent bedroom, wearing a coat and hat as if she had just walked in, strangled with a belt. Both had injuries on their heads suggesting they had been clubbed with something, and both had apparently been dead for several days, probably since June 1st. The rooms had been thoroughly ransacked and bags cut open. From almost the beginning, fixating on a statement made neighbor named Mrs. Hubert Hopkins that she had seen a slightly built and dark-skinned man who she said was, quote, probably a Hindu, entering the apartment about 10.30 on the morning, police began to look at Maureen's ex-husband, an Indian doctor named Noresha Torthy, for the murders. Maureen and Noresh had, div had divorced nearly four years before. The divorce paperwork filed by Maureen alleged extreme physical abuse at the hands of her husband, though for his part, he said that she had taken drugs from his medical supplies. It eventually transpired that Maureen, a nurse during World War I, had, indeed, become addicted to morphine after she was injured during the Battle of Vimy Ridge in 1917. 
It eventually turned out that Naresh was living and practicing medicine in London, and had been for quite some time. There was absolutely no way he had been involved in the killing, and it is quite likely that Mrs. Hopkins' statement might have well been an attempt to implicate him. But when the autopsy conducted by Dr. Werner Kirsten, but when the autopsy conducted by Dr. Werner Kirsten revealed that the evidence shows that Mrs. May was slain first and Mrs. Atorthy later, which would seem to discredit the view that Mrs. Atorthy was the marked victim and Mrs. May incidental. The police questioned other men, including William Sinclair, Maureen's sometime boyfriend who had taken her out Tuesday night, and Edward May, Fanny's son. On June 2nd, the bodies of Fanny May and Maureen Atorthy had not yet been found, but their killer had moved on. Martin C. at Sema came home from work to his home at 7501 South Sangamon Street on Chicago's south side and discovered the body of his wife, 35-year-old Mary C. at Sema, dead in the living room of their apartment. Mary had been strangled with three lengths of cord. Her clothing was torn and the apartment was ransacked. Her purse, which Martin said he believed held about $30 at the time of the slaying, lay empty on the floor. Initially, a meat delivery man named Michael Hirsch fell under suspicion when it was discovered he had a key to the sea at Sema property, that his clothing was bloodstained, and that he had in his pocket several lengths of cord similar to that which with Mary was strangled. So what type of cord she was strangled with is unclear. While early sources seem to say it was a telephone cord, it seems unlikely a meat delivery man would have links of telephone cord in his pockets. This would seem to suggest that it might have been more like that used to tie packages closed. But at any rate, Hirsch was discharged when it was proven that the blood on his clothing did, indeed, result from his occupation. The Dark Strangler's reign of terror, though, was only days from its end. On June 8th, a knock came at the door of Catherine Hill's boarding house at 133 Smith Street in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. At the door was a short, stocky, dark-skinned man who introduced himself as Mr. Woodcoats. He was dressed rather shabbily in a weather-beaten blue suit and overalls. Mrs. Hill thought he might have been an Italian and was probably just a workman. He took the vacant room Mrs. Hill had in her house. In the late afternoon of June 9th, he went out, ostensibly to get some money to pay his rent. Lola Cowan was 14. Her father John had become unemployed due to illness, and her mother took a job in a local hotel to make ends meet. A thoughtful girl, and wanting to do her part to help the family, Lola started selling artificial flowers made by her sister. This is what she was out doing on the evening of June 9th. At some point after 6.30 p.m., she apparently crossed paths with Mr. Woodcoats, who was, of course, really Earl, Earl Leonard Nelson. Nelson stayed in his room at Mrs. Hill's that night and had deserted the premises by June 10th. She went up to the room to clean up after the so-called Mr. Woodcoats, but finding the room pretty much in order, she left. In the late morning of that same day, an elderly man named William Haberman, living on the other side of the city, saw a man standing on the porch of a rent house across the street, 100 Riverton Avenue. The house had been rented by William and Emily Patterson, an Irish couple who had two children. It's not known exactly what happened that morning, but at about 6.25 p.m., 
When 27-year-old William Patterson arrived home, he couldn't locate his wife. By 10.30 p.m. that night, he still couldn't find her, and eventually discovered the beaten and strangled body of 23-year-old Emily Patterson shoved under the bed of one of his sons. He immediately called the police. A mysterious heap of clothing lay in one corner of the room, clothing he hadn't seen before, and $50 was missing. Back on Smith Street, Mrs. Hill read the June 11th article in the paper describing the murder of Emily Patterson and realized, with horror, that the man described by William Haberman seemed to be a description of none other than a recent boarder, Mr. Woodcoats, and the clothing found by William Patterson seemed to match what he'd been wearing when he left. She immediately told her husband, John, who went to inform the police. A short time later, the door to the former room of Mr. Woodcoats stood open, as another boarder, a Danish man named Bernhard Mortensen, was walking up the stairs. Mortensen noticed something pale lying near the bed and discovered the nude body of Lola Cowan shoved under the bed. A search was immediately mobilized for the killer of these two. A description of both his appearance and personality were broadcast on the radio. The broadcast stated, It has been established beyond doubt that the man who murdered 14-year-old Lola Cowan is the same one who strangled Mrs. Patterson. The rough clothes he left at the Patterson home were identified by Mrs. Hill as the clothes her rumor wore when he came to the house. It then went on to describe his habits and general M.O. All women with rooms to let or house for sale signs on houses are cautioned. This man may have taken a room from you in the last few days, or he may have come to your house for a room or to see the house. Do not admit him if you are alone. Keep your door hooked and put him off. Watch where he goes and notify the police as soon as you can. Don't get excited. If you have a for sale or rent sign on your house, this man will seek a pretext to enter your home. Do not admit any stranger. You will then be safe. We especially ask all railwaymen, both passenger and freight crews, to help us catch this fiend, who is a degenerate of the worst type and protect other defenseless women. This man may walk the main highways and get lifts from autoists. By this time, Nelson has made his way to Regina, Saskatchewan, where he boarded at the house of a Mrs. Mary Rowe at 1852 Lorne Street. Using the name Harry Harcourt, he stayed with Mrs. Rowe only a short time. During this time, she said, she had had an uneasy feeling about the amount of attention he paid to her nine-year-old daughter, Jessie, and in fact, she thought he might have been attempting to abduct her at one point before she followed them and retrieved her daughter. He left suddenly a few days later. The same day, an article appeared in the newspaper, revealing that the bodies of both Lola Cowan and Emily Patterson had been discovered in the extent of the hunt form. Police in Manitoba traced his movements, determining that he had bought a new suit at a shop belonging to Sam Waldman and pawned a set of clothes he had stolen at the Patterson home and that he had gone to Nick Tabor's barber shop, where he told the barber that he was an American from San Francisco, and that he had traveled all over the country in his supposed job as a salesman. Eventually, it was discovered that he had made his way to Regina. They spoke with Mrs. Rowe, and determined that Harry Harcourt was the same man that they sought. After departing Mrs. Rowe's boarding house, he pawned Emily Patterson's wedding ring. Spooked by the extensive manhunt being mobilized against him, he assumed the name Virgil Wilson and began attempts to make his way back over the border into the United States. 
He was encountered on the roadside by a man named Roy Armstrong near Boisevain, Manitoba, just above the American border. Young recognized who he was speaking to at the roadside and went to get the town constable, Joseph Young. Together, Armstrong and Young followed the man's trail southeast toward the tiny hamlet of Wacopa. The area where the town was is barely even inhabited now. Leslie Morgan, the proprietor of a general store in Wacopa, also encountered Virgil Wilson, and realizing he was the man sought for the two murders in Winnipeg, called the police barracks in the nearby town of Killarney. Constable Wilton Gray was dispatched. In the meantime, a laborer from Wacopa named Albert Dingwall took off in pursuit of the man. By the time Constable Gray got to the area, quite a sizable little gang of a half-dozen men was pursuing the fleeing murderer. Gray and the gang of men cornered the fugitive and brought him to the jail in Killarney on June 15th. At the jail, he insisted that his name was Virgil Wilson, and that he was British with a Spanish mother. He seemed a pretty friendly sort, and was a model prisoner, not giving the, the officers a hard time about anything, and chatting with the constables. He maintained that all he was guilty of was vagrancy. Nevertheless, they put Wilson in one of the cells in the town hall. Around 10.30 p.m., Constable Gray radioed his counterparts in Brandon to get a better description of the murder suspect. After hearing back from them, and convincing himself that the friendly Virgil Wilson was, indeed, the correct man, he walked back out toward the cells at around 11.15, and found the cell door open and no one inside. Constable William Dunn, who had been guarding the prisoner, said he had stepped outside to have a smoke, but was gone no more than five minutes. The cell was padlocked, in addition to the normal lock on the door. He had absolutely no idea how Wilson could have gotten out. He was recaptured, however, about 8.30 the next morning, hiding out on a farm. An instance is recounted in which, after his reapprehension, the so-called Wilson was handcuffed, and within a minute, was out of the handcuffs. He sarcastically said to the officers that they weren't much good. After putting other restraints on him, Wilson conceded that he couldn't escape from these. He was brought to Winnipeg, where he was identified by John and Catherine Hill, and by William Haberman, as the man. So he was tied definitively to the murders of Lola Cowan and Emily Patterson. Afterward, as his picture circulated through the press, he was identified by others and tied to other murders. Merton Newman, the murder of Clara Newman in San Francisco. David Atwood and Charlotte Jaffe identified him. Now he was tied to the murder of Mary Nisbet in Oakland. Mrs. H.C. Murray, the pregnant woman who was attacked but escaped. Fred Merritt, now the murder of Jenny Randolph in Buffalo. A year and a half after he began his killing spree in the Bay Area, Earl Leonard Nelson was finally in police custody. And this time, he wasn't going anywhere. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. 
I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgodark. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.